Welcome to Mediocre from Minnesota Daily Conversations, a snack-sized podcast delivering a frequent dose of mediocrity that you didn't know you needed. Make sure to follow Mediocre from Minnesota on Instagram and Facebook. Add us on your preferred podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, tell 50 to 100 people how great it is and how your life has been changed forever since listening to it. Today's topics are Nursery Rhymes Exposed, Morning Routine, and This Day in History. First, today's sponsor is Rick the Sticks Shovel Sharpening. Are your shovels so dull that you can't even dig a proper hole? Do you struggle and struggle with no success? Do your children call you a failure and laugh in your face? Don't stress. Stop by Rick the Sticks Shovel Sharpening to get your digging back on track. With Rick the Sticks Shovel Sharpening, you'll get the last laugh. So the first topic is Nursery Rhymes Exposed, and this was found on interestingfacts.com, all sorts of good stuff on there. So most American children know a heavily revised version of Rub-A-Dub-Dub with only men in a tub, but uh, if you actually go back to the original version, you can understand more of the origins of this 14th century uh, phrase or uh, or rhyme here. So the 14th century phrase goes, Hey, rub-a-dub, ho, rub-a-dub, three maids in a tub. And who do you think were there? The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and all of them going to the fair. So according to author Chris Roberts, the tub here refers to a bowdy fairground attraction. Today, it would be perhaps like a lap dancing venue, Robert said in 2005. The upper class, the respectable tradesfolk, you know, the candlestick maker, the butcher, and the baker are all oogling and ogling, creating an eyeful, uh, or getting it, sorry, getting an eyeful of some of these naked young ladies in a tub. So rub-a-dub-dub, according to him, is actually about a peep show. How... How pleasant is that? So next is Humpty Dumpty and the fact that it's not even about an egg. According to this website, there's nothing that makes Humpty an egg in this rhyme. That image was popularized by Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass in 1871, decades after the rhyme's first inception. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, Humpty Dumpty had a few meanings before the wall came into it, including a drink with brandy and a short dumpy, clumsy person. In 1881, the book uh, features Humpty as a clown. A popular theory is that Humpty Dumpty refers to a cannon used during the siege of Colchester in 1648. The idea that this rhyme is some kind of wartime ballad is pretty common. Before the cannon theory got traction, many believed the rhyme was about the usurpation of Richard III in 1483. However, according to the Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes, the root of this nursery rhyme could be even more innocent. While it's unclear whether this game predates the rhyme, Humpty Dumpty was a popular game in the 19th century where girls would tuck their legs into their skirts, fall back, and then try to regain balance without letting go of their skirts. According to authors Pete and Iona Opie, eggs do not sit on walls, but the verse becomes intelligible if it describes human beings who are impersonating eggs. So, kind of interesting how these have evolved over the years obviously you know a lot of times it was passed on through spoken word and so people kind of make their edits and make their changes and especially depending on location so uh, might have to look into some more nursery rhymes and see 
what else um what else kind of changed over the years and had quite the different origin next we're going to jump into morning routine and if you have kids your morning routines probably go nice and smooth you know you you got it all planned out everything goes great no hiccups and you're off to wherever you're going whether it's school daycare work what have you just kidding typically they're a bit chaotic oftentimes one of the if you've got more than one kid one kid is getting up early and uh then you've got to try to entertain or keep them occupied the other kid sleeps in late and so you've got to wake them up and and get them out the door in you know five minutes brushing teeth feeding changing you know all the good stuff a lot of times they claim they're hungry in the morning but they're not they just want uh, I think they just want to watch you prepare food for them, um, feel in control, watch you struggle. I, I think they might get enjoyment out of that because uh, you give them a plate of food, they eat meh, maybe maybe a few bites. On the rare occasion, they will actually eat the food, but most times, nope. I think it's just uh, just flexing a little power there. And uh, usually, you know, they'll wake up, you know, they're tired, especially the ones that you have to wake up. They're so tired. They're so tired. They're moving so slow. They can barely get out of bed. They can barely get their clothes on. Oh, you've got to help them brush their teeth because it's so hard. And then when it's actually time to get their stuff on and get out the door, they've got all the energy in the world. They're running around. They're playing games. They're picking on their brother or sister. Uh, It's just it. It's crazy how quick that energy comes back uh, when they don't actually have to do some of the chores or some of those morning routine items. And then you've got the trying to get all the crap on when it's, when it's winter. So you've got hats, mittens, boots. And the problem is, you know, maybe one kid, you're, you're getting, getting ready, you're helping them out because, you know, they're, they're a little younger. They need some help with some of their some of their items, and then by the time you you get to the other kid or by the time they get themselves ready, the other one, the littler one, now they've ditched everything because they don't want to sit in the house with all the stuff on. They're getting hot, so then you got to go back to them, and it's just a constant battle, and it doesn't matter what time you wake up. You can get up two hours before you need to leave. You can get up an hour and a half before. You can an hour, half an hour, whatever it is. It doesn't matter because... Every single time you're going to be rushing out the door, it does not matter what time you get up. It is just, it will always be a rush at the very end. I think what happens is that you just try to squeeze in more things when you get up earlier. Oh, I got up earlier. I can maybe squeeze this and I can squeeze that in. Nope. All that does is just that last 30 seconds, kids are screaming, you're screaming, you're grabbing anything that you think you need for the day. And you're and you're out the door. I had a great uh, great instance of this the other day when we're about to walk out the door and the kids are goofing around a little bit and one of them is chasing the other one and an entire mug of coffee gets knocked over and spilled all over the rug and all over the floor. And did I lose it? Yep, definitely did lose it. The kids. Uh, kids get out the door ASAP because they knew dad was not happy yes they did so 
just one more little uh, one more little present, one more little treat from the kids uh, right before we we had to leave for the day. And finally, we're gonna move on to this day in history, and this is thanks to the fine folks at History.com. On January eleventh, nineteen oh eight. U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt declared the massive Grand Canyon in northwestern Arizona a national monument. Though Native Americans lived in the area as early as the 13th century, the first European sighting of the canyon wasn't until 1540 by members of an expedition headed by the Spanish explorer Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. Because of its remote and inaccessible location, several centuries passed before North American settlers really explored the canyon. In 1869, geologist John Wesley Powell led a group of 10 men in the first difficult journey down the rapids of the Colorado River and along the length of the 277-mile gorge in four rowboats. By the end of the 19th century, the Grand Canyon was attracting thousands of tourists each year. One famous visitor was President Theodore Roosevelt, a New Yorker with a particular affection for the American West. After becoming president in 1901 after the assassination of President William McKinley, Roosevelt made environmental conservation a major part of his presidency. After establishing the National Wildlife Refuge to protect the country's animals, fish, and birds, Roosevelt turned his attention to federal regulation of public lands. Though a region could be given national park status, indicating that all private development on that land was illegal, that was only by an act of Congress. So Roosevelt cut down on the red tape beginning by beginning a new presidential practice of granting a similar national monument designation to some of the West's greatest features. In 1908, Roosevelt exercised the right to take more than 800,000 acres of the Grand Canyon area into a national monument. Let this great wonder of nature remain as it is now, he declared. You cannot improve upon it, but what you can do is keep it for your children, your children's children, and all who come after you as the one great site which every American should see. Congress didn't officially outlaw private development in the Grand Canyon until 1919 when President Woodrow Wilson signed the Grand Canyon National Park Act. Today, more than 5 million people visit the canyon each year. The canyon floor is accessible by foot, mule, or boat, and whitewater rafting. Hiking and running in the area are especially popular. Many choose to conserve their energies and simply take in the breathtaking view from the canyon's south rim some 7,000 feet above sea level and marvel at a vista virtually unchanged for over 400 years. Well, that's going to wrap up today's show. Thanks for listening to Daily Conversations, a snack-sized podcast delivering a frequent dose of mediocrity that you didn't know you needed.